This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lens Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we look at new films in cinemas and connect them to older films that you may or may not have heard about. My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer with a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And I'm Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts writer here in Halifax with the Chronicle Herald and elsewhere. On today's episode, we take a look at the forthcoming Halifax Independent Filmmakers Festival as we had a chance to look at some of the films that will be screening there. And then we talk about Canadian films in a broader sense and go back in time and check out the best and most interesting of some of our Canuck favorites. The F-Bombing New York Times bestsellers, Thug Kitchen. Gwyneth Paltrow's two-time co-author, Julia Tertian. The polite and proper Great British Bake Off's food stylist. What do they all have in common? They're all at the intersection of culinary arts and pop culture. And they've all been guests on The Food Podcast. A Village Soundcast network production where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. If you really want to connect with someone, just write them a letter. It was a dark and stormy night. The only light came from a lantern swinging from the gatepost. A pathway to where? What's your pathway? What's in your brown paper bag? I think for me, it's more about a feeling. Is that when I'm writing about food, I'm really writing about people. It was a springboard to learn about culture, history, and of course, health. As a story, I almost want there to be some internal conflict, even if it is just eggs or French toast. I am the architect of my own health. I decide what direction I go in. I build its foundation with every thought I think and with what I eat. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. Well, this is an interesting show for us because we're actually teeing up a, an upcoming event here in Halifax, which uh, may be done by the time some people listen to it. Hopefully some people will hear this show just before the Halifax Independent Filmmakers Festival gets underway for 2018 uh, from June 6th to June 9th at various locations around Halifax. Uh, lots of shorts, animated films, experimental films, uh, stuff from other countries, stuff from Canada, uh, things you wouldn't normally get to see in uh, through the normal channels. And uh, a lot of the screenings are happening at the Neptune Scotiabank stage, downtown Halifax. Uh, and uh, it, it's it's going to be a real mixed bag of stuff. Uh, you know, they, they definitely go out of their way to uh, find out what's happening in independent cinema on a, on a very grassroots and uh, kind of street level, uh, level of film, filmmaking. And uh, We've watched a couple of the, the things in advance to, to tee up uh, the festival, and I've gone through the schedule a little bit, and there's there's lots more happening. Uh, there's a lot of exciting stuff going on in the shorts programs. Uh, the animation looks amazing, and uh, and the, they've had uh, some of uh, some of the programmers who come from all over the place uh, picking some favorite shorts that they've seen at other festivals around the world. So it it really is a fascinating smorgasbord of uh, of material and. Uh, I'm certainly looking forward to catching more of the screenings, aside from the stuff we've just been able to watch uh, via online screeners. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, HIF is is a is a, a something to pay attention to in the Halifax film lovers calendar, and uh, I'm sure they'll get a lot of attention this year. In past years, I've seen some really interesting things I, uh, on the schedule this year. The one film I noticed that was there that I we didn't get to see that that's kind of I've put a little flag on is a Danish film yes. entitled Team Hurricane, which sounds pretty interesting, uh, and being half. Danish, there's a there's a you know the 
the motherland. I want to I want to support whatever I can to see see cinema from from that part of the world. Uh, but we did see a couple of Canadian films, which uh, in fact kind of uh, encouraged us or inspired us to go back and maybe uh, take a look at some other Canadian films from the past that we really we liked or you know revisited uh, a few, which we'll get to. But maybe we should start with those films that are showing at HIF and. Uh, one of the films that we saw is called All You Can Eat Buddha. It's from Ian Lagarde, a Montreal filmmaker. And I gather he's a cinematographer turned director. And he shot his film in Cuba, although it's sort of an unnamed tropical resort where it takes place. And stars French actor Ludovic Berthiot as Mike. He is a uh, fellow who's just arrived at this resort, and he seems intent on eating and drinking and ignoring the needs of his health. Uh, but after an encounter with a philosophical octopus, he has seems to, he seems to have the power to heal people, including a woman with an eating disorder that he meets at the uh, at the resort. Before, uh, but even before this octopus thing, he seems to be a magnetic to the people around him, including the resort manager and his chambermaid. Um, this is a deeply weird, kind of hypnotic film. It reminded me a little bit of the work of uh, Georges Lanthimos, the Greek filmmaker responsible for the lobster and yes, the killing of a I sacred got that deer. Vibe, yeah. I totally got that vibe. Uh, it might be heavily allegorical, but I'll be damned if I know what the allegory is. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I enjoyed it. I, I think there's something here about gourmandizing, about all the ways that human beings consume without thinking about it. There's something about conflict and the resort industry. Uh, it's a little unclear, which may be a debit to the film, but I, it's certainly not dull. I, I found myself really quite involved in the film, and uh, and I like that it has quite a bit of wit. This, If you're going to call your movie All You Can Eat Buddha, you know that there is a little <laughs> bit of a tongue-in-cheek going on here. Yes, it, it, there, there are elements of satire for sure. Uh, it's it's funny. I, I didn't At the time I was watching it, I didn't realize it was shot in Cuba because it, I feel like maybe I'd... When, you know, when I was in Veradero, there's a number of older resorts that have kind of gone past their prime, perhaps, or they've maybe even been abandoned by their owners. Because it, as it turns out, the uh, the government in Cuba, of course, owns the resorts. Sure. And uh, as it turns out, the, uh, the companies that own them or run them on behalf of the Cuban government, I should say, aren't really allowed to make a lot of upgrades or... You know, so the only really the only way a thing place gets upgraded is if they actually just start from scratch and build a new place, um, and uh, that happened actually with the resort I was at. It was it's not it wasn't quite it didn't quite descend into madness like like the one in uh, in the movie, but uh, it was one where the owner, which was Sandals, uh, could not make the upgrades to bring it up to the standards of the rest of their chain in other parts of the Caribbean and elsewhere, and so they. Uh, they basically just pulled out. They just, when the contract was up, they just said, we're not going to run this place anymore because we can't put our name on it sort of thing. So I guess they found one of those places to shoot at, maybe a place that was doomed but to be bulldozed right. and turned into something newer and bigger and fresher. Um, but of course, with, with as with, and then this does, this is a major factor in this film, as with all c- countries that have, you know, those kind of resort areas, there's also this huge uh, dichotomy between these people with, you know, material wealth and 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 means coming in from abroad into these countries that overall tend to have a lot of poverty, right? And uh, and a lot of uh, civil unrest to boot. Do and, you think that's what the film was getting into a little bit? Well, it's not the strongest 
plot thread through the film. It, 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 it's, it's kind of a lurking undercurrent for the first half, and then, of course, it comes more into play as uh, things start to spiral out of control, um, as the, the factors largely unseen, uh, you know, happening outside of the resort, eventually, occasionally you see glimpses of them on TV or what have you, or the bus pulls up and it's covered in graffiti yeah. as it brings people in from the airport. Uh, and I think it's kind of clever how it, how it does that. Um, I mean, obviously this is not a, I mean, they were already filming in a foreign country. So I'm guessing that the budget didn't call for staging a full fledged revolution. Um, but you know, there is kind of an apocalypse now feel to it. Uh, and maybe it was a direct homage to 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 it later in the film, sort of towards the end of the movie. But uh, I, I think I think you're you're right on the money with the, the whole consumption aspect of it and how um, we are kind of alienating ourselves from our spiritual sides uh, as you know society moves ahead, uh, and it's just all about um, you know like you say consumption and and uh, you know obtaining things and experiences and and so on without. Uh, Without, in fact, factoring the soul into all of it, and and basically we get this guy Mike who uh, is kind of a blank slate. He's kind of a schlub who just uh, we're not even sure why. Like what would have persuaded him to go to a resort? It's almost like like maybe he worked somewhere and they forced him to take some time off and go relax somewhere. Who knows? Uh, but he arrives and once he's there, he doesn't want to leave. Yeah. Um, and his sort of placid, calm. Uh, Demeanor is is kind of identified by some as, as having some deeper spiritual meaning, hence the the Buddha aspect of the title. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I liked him. I, Ludovic uh, Bertho is yeah, not he's, great. he's not an actor I'm I'm familiar with, but he really reminded me. He's kind of a French Ray, Ray Winston. There are moments of <laughs> yeah. with, with him in the pool that looked like they could have taken been taken right out of Sexy Beast. You know, it had that kind of vibe to it. Yeah, and and, and there's certainly antecedents for this film. I, I thought of uh, being there, the the Peter Sellers film, where you know he's just a simple gardener, but everyone thinks he's being really profound when he's talking about how to grow flowers, right. and stuff like that. Sure, uh, that, I think that's certainly a big influence. Um, there was a, a lesser known film called Touch, uh, based on an Elmore Leonard novel. I think with Skeets Ulrich as this man who suddenly discovers he has the power to heal. Oh yeah, um, I vaguely remember that. Sure, it was it was kind of a sort of festival circuit straight to video kind of title uh, but with a great kind of quirky cast I think Dennis Hopper was in it mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm not, I, I could be wrong about that but uh, I remember it having a cool cast as Elmore Leonard so there's some good dialogue and some some fun twists and, and character parts and stuff like that but maybe it didn't come together as a whole um, and and this uh, you know this is is kind of a little bit incomplete too I think in some ways uh, but overall, I like the character of Mike. I, I, I kind of like this progression that he goes through as, as basically somebody who's essentially unloved and, and solitary and, and in poor health and, uh, and so on. And then he has this kind of mystical experience while, while on this resort. Uh, the, the whole thing with the, the talking octopus, I thought, was, was, was well interplayed. I thought that sort of thing could, I mean, like, and that's where it starts to feel like, a, like the lobster or something like that. Yeah, when, yeah. when that surreal layer starts coming in. Because it, it, does, it sort of gradually creeps into the film. It's not evident right away. Um, but, uh, but, it, but it is captivating as he, as, he, as he interacts with the other people. And, and his kind of simple, calm demeanor kind of infects the other people around him. They yeah. kind of learn to kind of slow down and take a look at things around them and, and uh, see things for how they are. And that becomes a sort of spiritual experience, I guess, that, that everyone kind of 
picks up on. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting film. I, I think it's maybe of the ones we watched, it was my favorite. Uh, we also saw something called Mass for Shut-Ins. This is by Winston Dijiabi. Excuse my pronunciation if it's uh, if it's if it's off off base. Uh, and this is actually, I think, a, a Halifax filmmaker. Um, and this is an interesting uh, feature. It's just over an hour long, so it's a very very short feature. And I saw that uh, Ashley McKenzie and Nelson McDonald of of uh, the Cape Breton filmmaking team, who were responsible for Werewolf, they were thanked in the credits. And I could definitely see their influence on this filmmaker. Um, the in his sort of unvarnished aesthetic. Uh, this is a story, uh, sort of a just a meandering story about a, a, a guy named KJ. He's, he's 20-something. He lives very much an internal life with his grandfather, uh, has some conflict with an older brother, but not much really happens. It's really just a, a following a, a couple of mundane, you know, Nova Scotian lives. Uh, uh, I, I, yeah, I actually, I found myself, my patience a little bit, uh, it was challenged by this film, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily one to, to, I, I get the impression this is probably the first feature by this filmmaker and I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to put him down for his first time at, the, <laughs> at bat, uh, but I, I did find myself wondering about the larger thematic issues here, and uh, you know, and, and what he was trying to, the filmmaker was trying to say and do. At some points, he inserts a pink kind of uh, uh, sort of scene breakers in the middle uh, imagery uh, that that uh, I wasn't sure what that was about. I, I wasn't sure why he chose to do picture in picture in a couple of places. Um, but, uh, you know, there's definitely some interesting aesthetic choices and decisions being made here. I just weren't sh- wasn't sure how it served the narrative. Um, but, uh, yeah, this is – and it's called Mass for Shut-Ins. What did you think of it? Yeah, it is It is a bit aimless, uh, and I, but I guess that's the, the nature of the, the characters he chose to portray. Uh, it's uh, – from what I gather, it, it seems like he wanted to – uh, present a portrait of this kind of undernourished youth uh, culture, I guess, in mm-hmm. in into post-industrial Cape Breton. Um, you know, where where there's kind of an aimlessness to life. Uh, it's it's hard to find a purpose, and certainly KJ has no purpose in his life. Uh, you know, he lives with his grandfather and kind of relies on him for everything. Uh, you know, when his computer breaks down uh, and they have no money to, he's you know, his grandfather's no money to buy him a new computer. He's he just he basically starts going out and wandering around the town and encountering odd characters and it, it's definitely a shaggy dog story. There is there isn't a real kind of resolution. Um, it kind of hints at perhaps some sort of violence taking place further down the road, but it doesn't really go there. It just kind of uh, layers it in a little bit towards the end of the film. Uh, I think I liked it more than you did. I, I, I you know I didn't know where it was going to go, so there is a kind of element of the unexpected throughout the course of the film. Um, the brother character I thought was kind of fascinating. He's kind of this kind of a low-life skid, but he's not stupid. Uh, K- mm-hmm. KJ is a little dim. Uh, yeah. You know, he, he has no ambition, no no direction, and no one's pointing him in any particular... There's no There are no kind of... Like his grandfather just plays bingo and has pinups <laughs> stapled to his wall. Uh, so, you know, he's, uh, he's not really interested in his, gra- his grandson's well-being all that much. Um... So he's kind of adrift, and uh, you know, I get the feeling there are probably a lot of youth in the same kind of boat. So, so I, I don't know much about Winston's backstory. Maybe there's a bit of his own upbringing going on there. It's oh. it's um, 
and is pretty disturbing at points in the yeah, film. Yeah, there's a there's a big long scene where there's a, a lot of love given to a collection of, of handguns. Yes, that is uh, is like okay, so this this is might be where this is going, and maybe that's what the film is trying to do is suggesting all these like ways in which young people who don't have direction can be you know tempted towards extremism or towards bad decision making. Um, yeah, I, yeah, but I don't know. I don't. I it, don't it feels like there could there maybe there should have been a third act, and, and mm-hmm. maybe there easily could he could go back and add one. Probably. Yeah, yeah. Um, at, at this at this length, it could that could happen. It's, sure. it's, yeah, it's just over an hour, and uh, the you know the brother some of the scenes with the brother character, like where he's playing some sort of techno song, kind of dancing creepily around. I mean, I think maybe the one thing I did appreciate about the film the most was that there is this sort of ongoing sense of menace. That are, that's layered in throughout the film, like because you never know at any given time what's going to happen if a character's going to snap, or you know when he's, he's talking to this kind of oddball couple on the street, and the woman is kind of in his face, mm-hmm. and and you know she's from Inverness, and she's trying to find out where he's from, and she, you know thinks he doesn't, he isn't from around there, or maybe he doesn't belong there, and and uh, you don't know if she's going to snap or not. <laughs> I mean. Uh, you know, it's it's. I'm sure the entire the, the cast is all basically non-actors, so there's there's no uh, real predictability in the in the performances. But uh, I thought he got pretty good performances out of the people that he's working with. Certainly, the the, the brother is interesting because he, you're not sure what his path is. Like, how sketchy is he? <laughs> like, yeah. is he just kind of a a guy who spends a lot of time taking bottles back to the depot and maybe deals a little drugs on the side or what have you and or is there is there more to him than that and it, but you're right it does leave a lot of questions hanging at the end of it it feels a bit incomplete there's a there's a caregiver character as well a, a young woman who we see a couple of times and I wasn't 100% sure of all her her connectivity to to the story yeah he becomes a little fascinated with her but then she mm-hmm. just kind of drops out of the mm-hmm. the picture with no real resolution of that line yeah. either but uh it's an interesting character portrait I'll give it that and uh you know, as we're seeing on that level, and you know, as we noted, it is it doesn't uh, it doesn't demand too much of your time. And yes, there you go. It uh, might be worth going to the screening, and uh, Winston's going to be there and uh, for Q and A after the film, and he may have some more insight about where the story was going and where it came from, and uh, that could be worth uh, spending some time on. Um, we also saw In the Waves, which is, we don't talk a lot on this show uh, about um, documentaries, uh, but we got a chance to see this one. It's by Jacqueline Mills, and it's about. Her grandmother, who again Cape Breton-based, uh, a woman who is in her 80s, and she's dealing with the life after the death of her younger sister. And the documentary explores sort of her day to day, and includes a lot of evocative sort of natural imagery, as well as you know more domestic concerns and personal insights and memories. And uh, uh, it feels like a tribute to her grandmother, and also a kind of a, a conversation between generations in some ways. Um, yeah, I actually thought this was quite, had a, had a lyrical quality to it that I, I thought was quite lovely and, you know, melancholy. But uh, yeah, that's, it's called In the Waves by Jacqueline Mills, a, uh, uh, a documentary from, from these parts. Yeah, I, I, I thought it was a great portrait. I, I did, uh, I wasn't maybe in the right frame of mind for it at the time that I watched it. And I think it'd be better served by seeing it in the dark in a theater and where I can keep my focus on it because it, it is it is a bit meandering um, but uh, the the grandmother um, uh, Joan is is a fascinating woman and she has some some really eloquent things to say about about life and death and and she, of course a lot of the film d- is her dealing with the the sort of a 
the aging and then eventually uh, death of her sister, which would be the filmmaker's great aunt. And, uh, and that's, that's truly heartrending uh, because it's, 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 it's certainly real life and, and, and her, the grandmother's reaction to it is very real and very, uh, very poignant. And that's something that carries through the film. And there, there is a lot of wonderful imagery. And, um, you know, I think, I think I, this would be better served by a big screen viewing than, than trying to watch it on a, on a smaller screen at home. Uh, and, uh, and there are other characters in the film. The, 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 um, I guess the grandfather, who's always singing old country tunes, right. uh, is a fascinating guy. Uh, but obviously it's mostly about the grandmother. I, I would have liked to see more of the grandfather. But uh, you know his, his moments are, are quite wonderful. I, I like it when he, he sings, uh, Can I Sleep Tonight in Your Barn, Mister? Uh, <laughs> which uh, yeah. is the same melody as Red River Valley. It's kind of like an old hobo ballad, obviously. Um, and that's, that's really charming. And, uh, and the grandmother's, you know, she's 80, but she's still pretty full of life. You know, we see her dancing around to the Bear McNeils in the, in the house. And, and, uh, you know, she has a, she has a pretty, she's pretty optimistic despite the death of her sister and, and her, you know, the fact that, you know, she's talking about facing death, you know, sooner than later. Uh, she's also, you know, very uh, optimistic about and positive about her life and about, uh, you know, the children that she's brought into the world and, and uh, you know, in the end, it's very life affirming and and uh, and and beautiful at the same time. So, uh, I I I do feel like I've seen a lot of films of this sort. You know, the the I think the director she keeps herself out of it for the most part. I think you hear her voice off camera a couple times, but for the most part, it's it's in the voice of the grandmother, and and uh, I like that approach. Um, uh, but uh, you know, I've seen a lot of documentaries where you know there's kind of like soft synthesizer fills, kind of padding the background while we see some lyrical image of a you know a pond or something like that. And uh, I, I, I maybe I wanted something a little bit newer from it in terms of how it was going to tell this story. But but for what it is, it's 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 beautifully done and and uh, and worth seeing for for that character portrait. <laughs> So when we were thinking about uh, how we're going to, to do this episode today, Stephen, uh, you know, I know we, we talked about, okay, we're going to see these things from the Halifax Independent Filmmakers Festival, but uh, we're going to talk about Canadian film. Now, we've done a, an episode on Nova Scotian filmmakers, which was cool. I'm really glad we did that. But now we're going to expand out and think about Canadian film. Now, I obviously, there are some stars in the firmament of Canadian filmmakers. I think David Cronenberg deserves his own episode. Next time he does something, we're going to talk about him exclusively. So we're not going to talk about him today. And maybe even Adam McGoyan, who I know neither, neither of us are as fond of his work. I think... I think I like some of his stuff. Some of his stuff leaves me cold, but he's also obviously a big name that we could we could do a whole episode on. Yeah, oddly enough, I just watched a thing about Armenia, uh, a documentary, and so now I want to and it, it made me realize that I really need to to watch his films about you know his, uh, the Armenian crisis and and sure. tragedy. Uh, I think there's Calendar and uh, Ararat. I think were the two, yeah, two yeah. films. So I, I actually. I'm looking forward to revisiting some of his, and, and maybe even rewatching films that I, I know I liked, like like Felicia's Journey, that maybe weren't as well received. Yeah, I really like Chloe. Chloe was one I enjoyed. Uh, it felt like a really great Toronto film. Uh, it's a thriller about a prostitute and this uh, getting involved with this uh, uh, Liam Neeson and uh, Julianne Moore. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. So so those ones <laughs> obviously. Um, uh, Bruce McDonald is a filmmaker who I mean I if anyone. 
comes up to me and says, you know, what's a great Canadian film? I immediately think of Hardcore Logo. I think of uh, Highway 61. I think of Trigger. These are, yeah. are, I mean, he is kind of the rock and roll filmmaker in Canada. I don't think we have a Tarantino. And I wouldn't call him like Canada's Tarantino, but he has that kind of a, of a shoot from the hip kind of quality in his work that I, I really, I really like. Um, and Weirdos. And weirdos, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Shot in yeah. Cape Breton. I yeah. would love to talk about that one. Yeah, um, but uh, I was trying to think of what was the the oldest Canadian film I've ever seen, and it's probably going down the road. Don Shabib's film, and you know he made a, a sequel to it many years later in 2011. There's Down the Road Again. So yes. you know there's this interesting sort of slice of Canadian film history that that has a has a sequel. That that just the fact that there is such a thing is kind of awesome. but And a great SCTV sketch inspired by the original. Right, right. Which has Jane Eastwood, who is in the film, is in the sketch playing the same character. Yeah. And I think they put that on the DVD uh, of Going Down the Road, which uh, I found, uh, if, if, if you're listening to this and you're in Canada, uh, I'd say check out the bargain bins at Giant Tiger because I found the Blu-ray of both Going Down the Roads uh, in there for like, Six ninety nine. No kidding. Like Definitely worth picking up. <laughs> I, um, wish, I wish I'd bought more of them just to have handy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to I give would give to friends or it's, whatever. It's not in my library, but I, I would like to have that. Uh, so yeah, that to me is like the historic. I'm sure there were films made in Canada previous to that, but uh, you know, a National Film Board movies and that kind of thing. But in terms of of feature films that have survived and are part of our sort of national conversation, I maybe you can say a little bit about you know Canadian film and 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 of course. Uh, we've got a couple on our slate today of, from the tax shelter years. So uh, I think uh, this is where I hand it over to you and your knowledge well, of this, this situation, Stephen. I mean, uh, obviously films have been made in Canada since the silent days. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, the very first, I, maybe we talked about this on the Nova Scotia episode, but the very first feature made in Canada was shot in Halifax. It was a, an adaptation of Evangeline, um, the poem, uh, I guess Longfellow, I mm. think, a uh, poem about... Um, the uh, the Acadian expulsion and they, they made a they shot a film of it here. It was a company called Canadian Bioscope, uh, which operated in Halifax. They made a couple of features and then completely vanished from the face of the earth around the time uh, the, the First World War basically just uh, destroyed the company. I guess because they couldn't get supplies and half the market was gone. So, um, but they they did make a film about Evangeline. There are a few stills that survive. Uh, they filmed some of it. Uh, in a warehouse that still stands, there's a stone building at the very south, actually, like almost across the street from from you or down the road from where you live. At the very end of Barrington Street, there's a large stone warehouse, um, which was Canada's first film studio. No kidding. Yeah. Uh, so just just go back. It's where that weird tunnel goes through to the docks. Sure. But, uh, yeah. 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 Um, that building was. They used that for uh, their soundstage, and they did some filming in the valley. And there are some stills surviving of them filming, I guess, at Grand Prix or somewhere around there. And also apparently a, a backyard in Herring Cove somewhere <laughs> was also served as a as a set piece based on whatever research that uh, Gordon Parsons did before he passed away. Um, but anyway, that's kind of that was kind of where it started. Um, and then there was a, a silent comedy called Carry On Sergeant, not to be confused with the British Carry On comedies of the 50s and 60s and 70s, uh, that was enormously popular and has been restored. Uh, Strangely enough, it hasn't played here uh, in the restoration. I would love to see it. Um, uh, I've just seen a kind of a trailer for the restoration, and and then you know the the feature industry kind of ebbs and flows throughout there. There's the odd Canadian film being made through the 30s and 40s. Uh, certainly, the, the film board coming into uh, into being, you know, gave it a, a big boost. Uh, there was a film from the 40s called Bush Pilot. <laughs> 
which was like the first Canadian feature in a while, I guess. And it was about the rugged pilots up in the north. And actually, Austin Willis, who lived in Halifax in his later years, uh, was heavily involved in that. I think he may have uh, co-produced it and starred in it and uh, in one of his earliest roles. Uh, and uh, and then, you, st- you know, you start to see more interest as... Um, in the Ford in the in the fifties, you get some British productions coming to Canada and making films here, um, you know, for for showing on the Odeon circuit around the world, kind of thing. Uh, but but sort of into the in that that film board generation starts to make features and so on, and they start branching out, and you start to get more of a Canadian film scene. Um, I, I think the first really early Canadian feature I can think of for myself would be. Um, Probably the apprenticeship of Duty Kravitz. Sure. With uh, Ted Kotcheff directed, um, uh, they brought up um, uh, oh Dry- no. Dreyfus. Richard Dreyfus yeah. uh, brought yeah. him up from the states to play Duty, yeah. uh, based on the Mordecai Richler novel, and it's a fantastic film. It's still it's still a wonderful film. There's a, there's a copy on DVD at the Halifax Library if you want to take that out. Uh, wonderful film of, of life in the Jewish community in Montreal in the 19. 19- 40s and 50s, and uh, and a great performance by Dreyfus, and then Ted Kotcheff. After that, would go to Australia to make uh, um, Outback, aka uh, Wake and Fright, yeah, sure, uh, which is an amazing film, which yeah. is just in recent years being rediscovered. Um, and and I, didn't he make the first Rambo movie yeah, as well? Yeah, first I think Blood? that's right. I think that's so right. Th- that's a pretty interesting career yeah. right there. Yeah, and um, you know, I was thinking about the work of Norm Norman Jewison, who. Uh, as far as I know, I mean, he, of course, he's a he's a noted Canadian filmmaker, but he made most of his films in the Hollywood system. Am I right about that, or he, did he make some things here before he went? No, he went down to the. I mean, he went to the states and worked in television, and uh, I think Agnes of God he made in Canada. Okay, uh, with Jane Fonda, but um, I think the bulk of his work was done sort of in Hollywood. Actually, right. and I heard that there's a apparently a theatrical screening of his Thomas Crown Affair. Huh. Coming up at Cineplex, um, maybe even if <laughs> it might even be if you're listening to this on CKDU on Tuesday, uh, I think it might even be tonight, June first. I think, um, or maybe uh, anyway, l- check your local listings. I think in June because they've been having these kind of surprise classic screenings. Like last month, yeah. it was uh, they showed Star- uh, Sunset Boulevard, right? And but un- unless you actually looked at the schedule, you wouldn't have known it was playing. <laughs> there was no promotion. <laughs> There's no promotion for it at all, as is the Cineplex way, and. Um, and I just found out about it by chance. Somebody happened to notice that there was several screenings of Sunset Boulevard, one of my favorite movies, which I'd never seen on a big screen before. So that was an, an amazing opportunity. And and I think uh, seeing Faye Dunaway and Steve McQueen on the big screen has got to be yeah. a, that's got to be an experience. So I think, I think June first is Friday. Oh, okay. If I'm not mistaken, maybe I, I don't have a calendar in front of me. Anyway, track. look at look at the listings, and and there, you might get a chance to see Norman Jewison's excellent romantic thriller caper movie the thomas crown affair on a big screen maybe a couple times in june so yeah uh but you know in the 70s they we had the what they called uh, affectionately the tax shelter years but this was a system basically that allowed for people to invest in film and then uh you know basically park their money and in a company in order to to create films uh and it made for some pretty unusual producers in the Canadian film uh, system, but also it made for some interesting films that some of which are not so fondly remembered, but a few, a few are. Yeah. If, if there's a great website called Canucksploitation, which chronicles a lot of these forgotten titles and it's, it, it is very much of a rabbit hole of a website. Once you start to realize the number of films, which were made in, in, in the mid to late seventies into the early eighties, 
Um, you know, primarily, I, th- I think we were talking about this earlier, consortiums of dentists would get together and sink their money into a horror film or something like that. And, and um, you know, every once in a while, they'd be, the producers would be people who didn't know the film business and, and the director might actually have complete freedom <laughs> to do what they wanted and make some crazy piece of film. You know, there's, there's a classic called Rituals, which is kind of a Canadian version of Deliverance. I guess that's the, the easiest way to sell it with um, Hal Holbrook and a bunch of guys going out on a, on a men's retreat weekend in the wilderness and then things go horribly wrong. It's a great film. Uh, it has been restored. Uh, Code Red, I think, put out a DVD of it a while ago. It's out of print now. But worth uh, worth tracking down. Uh, a great uh, 70s adventure thriller, if you will. Um, a lot of horror movies, because obviously there was a big market for them. The, certainly the, the, the drive-in was still big. There were still grindhouse theaters to show them. Um, home video hadn't quite taken over the marketplace yet. Although a lot of these films did go to straight-to-video uh, sometimes you can find those really old clamshell VHS cases. Oh, of, I remember those. Of some of sure. these Canadian, you know, they got one release on VHS in in the mid '80s and then vanished forever. So, um, you know, Canuck exploitation is great because they're trying to salvage this past, which is rapidly ebbing away. I mean, there's you know probably warehouses with old 35 millimeter prints sitting on them, completely forgotten and on the back shelves and that kind of thing. That actually, there was one such warehouse in St. John, New Brunswick, of all places, that had tons of these kind of titles huh. wow. um, stashed with just things, films that. They didn't know who had the rights to them. They couldn't destroy them because they didn't have the authority, but they couldn't let anyone see them because they didn't have the rights to them. And and, and they had shelves of these films. They didn't know what to do with it. They could still be there, for all I know, uh, at Victoria Films in, in St. John. So uh, it, it was it was an odd, odd time. Uh, the, they would kind of bring up one, they'd bring up a notable star from the States probably, and then you know a lot of familiar Canadian faces. Chris Wiggins got a lot of work. During this time, uh, a lot of a lot of actors you'd see on Wayne and Schuster uh, would show up in bit parts, you know, that, that kind of thing. It, was, it provided a lot of work, and it actually, you know, some of these films are, are forgettable, and some of them are kind of fun. And, and every once in a while, you come across one that's kind of a forgotten masterpiece. But but it did kind of create an industry uh, and built a, a base of talent, uh, both in front of and behind the camera. So there was a positive outcome. Um, you know, a lot of that talent went into working into TV and so on, but but uh, a lot of great stuff came out of it. Uh, and uh, I think we're going to talk about uh, Bob Clark uh, at yeah. this point because, yeah. you know, I, I don't know how much of his films, I mean, his films are fairly well known, which is not always the case with a lot of the tax sheltery kind of things, um, but most of his films are, are recognized and remembered. Uh, Black Christmas with the late Margot Kidder is sure. is a is a big classic. Yeah, and a uh, nod to Margot Kidder. Yeah, certainly. yeah. Certainly. S- sad news uh, last week that she passed away. I'm sure she was in a lot of these kinds of films, and uh, you know maybe maybe her recent passing will attend put attention on the rest of her career outside of Superman because she was always a fascinating presence on screen and kind of unpredictable as a, as an actor and and always fun to watch. Um, and uh, and Black Christmas kind of predates the slasher film by a few years. Like it, it's it's not in and of itself. It's not necessarily original because there are films by William Castle, these kind of thrillers that kind of predate it. But it was kind of the modern um, precursor to Halloween and 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 Friday the Thirteenth and so on. And those kind of films that followed. So he was kind of ahead of the curve in that way. Um, you know, he made some other films like there's one called Death Dream about a Vietnam vet who comes home from the war, but. Uh, he comes back different, you know, or, or you know, or or is he alive at all? I guess is the the, the big question um, in that film, and that's worth seeking out. That that's a 
great little low-budget thriller. Uh, I love one he made called Deranged, um, which is basically, it's it's a, almost a factual retelling of the story of Ed Gein, uh, the uh, cannibal of Plainfield, Wisconsin, who uh, either killed people and, and performed taxidermy on them or, or dug them up and, mm. uh, you know, used their corpses for pieces of art and furniture and something like that, yeah. which, which, which in turn inspired the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and apparently Psycho, even though the, even though the movie Psycho bears no resemblance to the story of Ed Gein, he, he did uh, have this obsession with his mother. So I guess that's, that aspect comes into play in Psycho. And I think Robert Block, who wrote the original story, has acknowledged that Gein was kind of the, the kernel around which he, he built his story for Alfred Hitchcock. Um, so it's a story that's been told many, many times, but uh, uh, Bob Clark and um, Alan Ormsby, his frequent collaborator in the early days, sort of, they actually made a factual retelling of the story. They changed the character's well, name. When, when was this? Deranged is like 74, 75, okay, okay, something, I think. Right. Um, and it stars Roberts Blossom, who's a great character actor. He's in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, he's in a bunch of different things. Um, but here he's the lead as this slightly fictionalized version of Ed Gein and it, it's it's a pretty fascinating film. It's it's currently available. I think uh, maybe Arrow Films have put right. it out on Blu-ray and stuff. Right. So, so um, you know, he made these kind of low-budget horror films but uh, each one was gradually more polished than the last and, and each one got more recognition than the last and, you know, eventually becomes a, a known filmmaker uh, and uh, still fairly true to his Canadian roots trying to shoot in Canada as much as he can. Porky's obviously was the film that, yeah. you know, because and I think because probably he had a piece of it, it, it was like one of the biggest, uh, maybe still is the biggest Canadian the, box office hit of all time. This is what I was going to ask you, whether it still is. I know for a long time it was one of those sort of like embarrassing uh, facts about Canadian film was that Porky's, this incredibly obnoxious uh, frat <laughs> comedy uh, that, you know, basically a an Animal House ripoff uh, was in fact the most the biggest box office hit in, in uh, Canadian film history. Uh, yeah, so I Bob, think, Bob I think Clark directed that. Yeah, and I think it's been surpassed. I think I, I heard that Good Cop, Bon Cop okay. has, has maybe overtaken it. Right, which, which is which is maybe makes us all feel a little better. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> and, and Porky's is kind of, it, it, you know, it's probably the film that most people will know him for, aside from A Christmas Story, obviously. Although, right. I, you know, most people probably don't think about the director when they think about that film. They think about... The leg lamp and fudge and yeah. you'll shoot your eye out. But um, but that was, you know, Clark's kind of nostalgic uh, vision. And it was half shot in Toronto and half shot in Cleveland, I think. Um, uh, so, so you know, those two, Porky's and, and A Christmas Story, which are like the opposite ends of the spectrum <laughs> as far as films go, uh, are kind of what his reputation is based on. But he made a lot of other films. Some of them are just fairly conventional, kind of Hollywoody kind of comedies or dramas or whatever. But uh, but we chose a film that uh, was, I think, just before Porky's and A Christmas Story. This is a, a kind of a classy production that he did um, at a time when uh, Sherlock Holmes, I guess Sherlock Holmes was maybe not in vogue, but there had been films featuring the character fairly recently. There was The 7% Solution uh, with Nicole Williamson as a great Sherlock Holmes uh, meeting uh, Sigmund Freud played by Alan Arkin. That's a fun film. Uh, <laughs> that sounds like it. Oh, it, it, it's a wonderful film. Uh, and Robert Duvall plays Watson in that one. And then there's uh, The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, which is one of Billy Wilder's later films, uh, and one that was sort of taken away from him by the studio and kind of butchered. But but what remains is still a lot of fun. And it's more of a... It's, 
more of a farce slash satire take. And of course, there was the uh, the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes' smarter brother, <laughs> right, with Gene Wilder, yeah. uh, which is just a flat out. You know, farce. We could uh, do a whole parody. episode on Sherlock Holmes. Well, we, we we could, and in fact, I I get the feeling I I've heard rumors that there will be a third outing from uh, Robert Downey Jr. I've heard that too. Yeah, so, I heard that this week. So I guess maybe hopefully it'll be better than the second one. Uh, and uh, anyway, we, we can we can address that. But 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 this one is is uh, called Murder by Decree from and, 1979. Yes, and uh, I think it was a hit at the time. It was uh, an an English a British uh, Canadian co production. Uh, where Sherlock Holmes takes on Jack the Ripper and uh, and also gets heavily involved in some political intrigue, uh, which was based on certain theories that were circulating at the time. This isn't the first Sherlock Holmes meets Jack the Ripper uh, novel, or sorry, uh, story. There was actually a film in the 60s called Terror by Night, which, um, no, sorry, um, A Study in Terror, uh, with uh, John Giel, not John Gielgud, John Neville uh, playing Sherlock Holmes. Okay. And, uh, of course, you know, if, if you live in Halifax and you're of a certain age, you'll remember he was uh, the artistic director at, at Neptune Theatre for many years and was a, a fabulous figure on the scene uh, in Halifax before kind of being rediscovered by Terry Gilliam for The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. So, I mean, and he's sadly no longer with us, but that, that was a pretty amazing career. Yeah, seriously. You know, to star in like this Hammer film-esque Sherlock Holmes, Jack the Ripper thing, and then to become this um, scion of Canadian theater, and then to have this kind of third career uh, coming back for Baron Munchausen. Um, and uh, I you know, interviewed him a couple times, lovely man. And that film also features a young Judy Dench. Aha. Uh-huh. I think maybe playing a young bar wench or something like right, that. So right. also, also another good reason to seek that out. Um, but uh, but this murder by decree is... is uh, very Canadian, even though a lot of it's shot in London. There are some some great uh, British locations. I think some of it was also done in Canada to qualify for whatever tax credit co-production thing that it was after. Um, so I think they sh- I think they shot some scenes in the uh, distillery district. Okay, sure. In Toronto, which you know has that brick wall cobblestone kind of feel sure. to it. East End London of the eighteen hundreds. Exactly, yeah. and uh, we have Christopher Plummer. As as a very good Sherlock Holmes, I thought. And yeah, I thought he was sort of charming, and but he was preoccupied, but not without humor or empathy. And and he's with James Mason. Who, yeah, James Mason's a great Watson. Great, and they have a real chemistry, the two of them. I, I really enjoyed their their vibe, and maybe I mean it's I think it's sort of the main relationship in the film. Yeah, the, the, they're a really great pairing of, of Holmes and Watson. Um, it's a shame Mason never played the character again. Um, and and I, I think when the Jeremy, I don't know if you ever watched the Jeremy Brett series sure. that was on British television and later on PBS, but uh, I think the casting of, there were two different Watsons, but I think they were very cast, much cast in the James Mason mold. Um, you know, because Watson, of course, was famously pay, played in a bunch of Hollywood films as a kind of a doddering goofball or yeah. a kind of a, you know, and, and, it took a long time to kind of turn that around. <laughs> yeah, he's very effective here. He's clearly, uh, you know, a good partner to Holmes. And uh, there, there's a, a hilarious scene where Watson is trying to skewer the final pea on his plate yes. when they're having dinner, <laughs> and Holmes squishes it. And Watson says, "You know what? I don't like it squished. I wanted to, I wanted to skewer it." And it's anyway that, but I, but it, yes, it's, I wanted to feel it pop in my mouth. My, that's it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and speaking of the Canadian connection, Donald Sutherland plays a spooky psychic who thinks he knows who the killer 
trailer is. Uh, I, yeah, this felt like it was wandering in from some other movie. Um, I, I wasn't crazy about his role. <laughs> no, that is definitely the weakest point in the whole movie, I think. Yeah. It, it feels like, oh, we've got Donald Sutherland for three days. Let's airlift him into this movie and create this role of the psychic. But you could actually completely delete his scenes. And it wouldn't make any difference. because no. Because then he, he, he actually discovers the identity of the Ripper, but then refuses to tell anyone <laughs> for reasons which are... I guess maybe because he fears for his own safety or something like that. But um, so that's kind of a, a dead end yeah. story wise. But I guess if it, well, if we can get uh, Don Sutherland on the poster and on the and if you see the original poster, it's got every face in the movie just plastered on the poster, yeah. just so you know that there are a lot of big names. Because we also have um, well Susan Clark, who was married to Bob Clark at the time, um, Canadian uh, actress. Who was in a, she was under contract to Universal, so she shows up in a lot of 60s and 70s Universal kind of standard run-of-the-mill uh, studio films. Uh, she does turn up in things like Coogan's Bluff, I think, like the, uh-huh. the, the Clint Eastwood movie. And, and, um, and then she did a lot of TV, um, and then she worked a lot with, with her husband. Um, Anthony Quayle, who's a well-known uh, British character actor. John Gielgud shows up for probably a day's work as yep. the prime minister. Um, Frank Finlay, who's a great British character actor, plays Lestrade, but has virtually nothing to do because, of course, we have uh, David Hemmings as kind of the main police inspector who also has kind of some shady past going on. Um, so Lestrade kind of gets pushed into the into the background. And um, lest we forget, another uh, day's worth of shooting for Genevieve Bujold as uh, Annie Crook, um, who may or may not uh, become one of the victims of the Ripper. Um, so, uh, and of course, the, this plays up the whole conspiracy theory about whether or not the royal family was involved with Jack the Ripper, and um, we get the Freemasons involved. Yeah, this is um, one of the the main theories about who the Ripper was, and who, of course, Alan Moore uh, utilized this story in his From Hell graphic novel, and then eventually there was a film made of that with uh, Johnny Depp. Yeah, so it's it's been returned to time and again, but this is kind of the first time that it entered sort of the mass public's uh, I, and some people still think there's some some validity in the in, in those uh, in those suggestions. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, you know, I, I've actually you know I, I went down a bit of a ripper hole around the time of uh, of um, uh, from hell, and uh, you know I like the one the fact that the painter who who his had several paintings which resembled the crime scenes. I, I like that uh, that theory. Uh, it, in the end, I don't think it held a lot of water, but there were some interesting coincidences, like apparently his studio wasn't too far from where a lot of from Whitechapel, where a lot of the murders committed, and you know there were time when there weren't murders being committed, he was known to be in Paris. So you know when he was in Paris, there were no murders happening in London. You know all this kind of stuff. So it's it's all kind of circumstantial, but it's fun to fun to kind of connect the dots. But I I, I do enjoy this film. It's you know it does have a bit of that patchwork quality that some of these uh, tax sheltery films have, but it's got some really strong performances and, and, you know, it's one of the better Sherlock Holmes movies too in that regard. Yeah, I thought it, a little bit meandering, but I liked it too. Um, now we also watched another film of, from this era, uh, from 1977, we watched yes. The Disappearance, which, which uh, has some connections to Murder by Decree. Yeah, yeah, well, in the, certainly in the casting, it was directed by Stuart Cooper, um, uh, co-written by Paul Mayersberg, who wrote later uh, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, and Croupier. Uh, and this is an interesting film, sort of a, a partly shot in the UK, partly shot in Montreal in the bleak midwinter, and this is a note to people who create fake snow. This is what it really looks <laughs> yes. like. like 
Like it is no, there is no doubt that this is like really wintry Montreal. Um, Don Sutherland plays a guy named Mallory who comes home one night to his stylish flat in Habitat 67 on the, uh, on the, on the river there in Montreal. Um, for those who know that, that, uh, architectural project and he finds his wife is missing. She's played by Francine Reset who in real life is married to Sutherland, I gather. Uh, Anyway, she's gone, but cue the flashbacks to their troubled, tempestuous relationship where she's very much the sort of quintessential cliched uh, French lady with, you know, all demands and uh, emotional um, peaks and valleys. Uh, And he is the chilly, you know, Anglophone... Uh, dude. Uh, it's, it feels very 70s in yes. some ways. Um, but Mallory, we discover, makes his living as a hitman. And he's pretty fed up with his superiors at the office, the organization he works for, including David Warner. Uh, but while trying to track down his missing wife, he gets a fresh assignment to kill a target, but very few details about who the target is, which makes him wonder what's going on. Before long, he's crossed paths with David Hemmings again, uh, <laughs> John Hurt, and Christopher Plummer. Um, I liked it. I, I think, I mean, I'm a fan of hitman movies generally I think this is a stylish entry to that genre I really enjoyed the Montreal locations and uh, yeah and I thought Sutherland is always worth watching uh, at any point in his career but you know right now in the, in the mid 70s he was in his prime yeah I like this film it does have a bit of that elliptical Nicholas Rogue kind of feel which I think is what they were going for I think that's why they got Donald Sutherland to be in it because he was in Don't Look Now and in fact uh, the screenwriter also worked on The Man Who Fell to Earth which is uh, probably Rogue's best-known film, and uh, along with Don't Look Now. And so it, it, it kind of t- jumps around in time a little bit. You know, they go from flashback to current day, and it takes you a second to kind of catch up with where the film's going. But it does, you know, as it moves along, all the pieces start to fall into place, and I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, and, of course, seeing so many familiar faces along the way, um, sort of pointing Donald Sutherland towards his uh, his ultimate goal of his of his target. Uh, John Hurt is great as kind of like a kind of a junior uh, assistant in the whole in this kind of shadowy uh, assassin organization. <laughs> and he's great because he's kind of like one step behind all the time, but you know he's trying. <laughs> it's fun to see him just looking so young, you know, pre alien, um, and he's he's terrific in it. And yeah, and the locations are great. And, uh, and and Sutherland, you know, he, he kind of plays it cool through the whole thing, but maybe that works for the kind of way this uh, scenario is set up. Uh, you know, he, he has the occasional outburst, I guess, and from time to time. But but it's kind of the kind of role that he does really well. Um, and uh, and it's interesting that if you get the uh, – there were three different cuts of this movie. There was the director's cut, which was a lot more shadowy and vague, and then – the cut that has been released on Blu-ray by Twilight Time and presumably DVD um, was kind of like a compromise cut between a more linear version of the story and the more kind of out-of-time version uh, that the director envisioned. And I guess that he did sign off on the version that ultimately came out. But if you buy the Blu-ray or DVD, um, you do get a copy of his version of the film as well, which is, a, you know, it's it's like a work print or something like that. But but you can see his vision for the film, uh, and uh, it's a bit longer. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to – I've watched a little bit of it just to see how out of sequence stuff is. But um, you may want to pick this up at some point and then check out both versions. So as we are rapidly reaching the end of our uh, our our time talking about film and Canadian film here, there's so many filmmakers I could – 
recommend to people. Uh, I'm a big fan of Sarah Pauly, who has made three features, well, two features and a documentary feature in a way. Uh, away from her, she Take This Waltz, which I love from 2012, and Stories We Tell, which was my favorite film that year. Uh, she is wonderful. Uh, I recently saw Mina Shum's return to cinema with Meditation Park, and she is a great Canadian filmmaker as well. Her double happiness back in the, in the 90s made a big splash. Um, also, one of my favorite uh, horror films is Ginger Snaps from 2000, directed by John Fawcett, who went on to have a major hand in Orphan Black, anyone who happens to be a fan of that series. Um, Ginger Snaps is a werewolf story about two goth sisters living in a generic suburban hellhole where one encounters a werewolf just as she gets her first period, and uh, the film parallels sort of the the puberty and all its humiliations with lycanthropy in a in a funny and a very telling way. That's a film I'd really recommend. Ginger Snaps. Um, but uh, you know, as we talk about film in Canada, it, it feels like English language film and English Canada has really struggled to embrace Canadian cinema, whereas Quebec and French language cinema is huge and continues to be. They uh, have a really great. Uh, an ongoing cinema with so many amazing filmmakers through the years. Uh, everyone from uh, Francois Girard, uh, Xavier Dolan, um, uh, Denis Arcand, and his Jesus of Montreal was a huge, huge hit globally. Um, and his films, The Decline of the American Empire and um, Barbarian Invasions, is sort of stories of of disaffected French, uh, you know, privileged French people dealing with their aging and their sex lives. Uh, another installment apparently is coming this year called The Fall of the American Empire. So there's another filmmaker I would really recommend people check out. But uh, but yeah, and, and a number of French filmmakers have gone on to have really high-profile careers in Hollywood right now, including Denis Villeneuve, who... Uh, who's recently made uh, Sicario, Arrival, and Blade Runner 2049, and Jean-Marc Vallée, who has been making films for 20 years. Uh, his, his, his TV series, Big Little Lies, one of, is an award-winning series, uh, and he, but back, go back a few years, and he made a film that was my favorite film in 2011 called Café de Flore or Café de Flore. Uh, and this is something I really recommended, Stephen, that you watch. And I'm really glad that you did. Uh, yes. And it's uh, uh, Jean-Marc Vallée has a real talent not only for storytelling and film but uh, for using music. And I find that's one of his sort of signature sort of stylistic qualities. Uh, and this film is just wrapped up in a song. It tells a story from two different time periods, one in in Paris in the 60s with a woman, a young woman taking care of her son who has Down syndrome, and then a, a DJ in Montreal in the current day who's having issues with his relationships, with an ex-wife, with his current partner and his family, and and uh, and how these two stories connect is, is the central mystery of the movie, but they're both really well told so you can get invested in those characters even without knowing until the very end how they do connect. Yeah, this was a fascinating film. Thanks for for loaning me your your copy of this. Um, you know, I was certainly familiar with uh, Jean-Marc Vallée's work. Uh, you know, C R A Z Y. Of course, it might be his best known uh, Canadian feature prior to this one. And of course, he also directed Wild yes, with Reese Wither- right. Witherspoon, yeah. which might be his best known English language uh, feature, and certainly certainly a worthwhile one. Uh, but this this film is is fairly epic uh, <laughs> in terms of. The scope, uh, jumping between 1969 and 2011, um, and the, these 
lives of these two very different families. Uh, and uh, yeah, I was captivated throughout, wondering what the connections were and and the the segues between from one to the other, where you catch glimpses of characters in the past and in the future, and and everything. It, it's so he you know it's so skillful in the way it kind of guides you down this path and and. Uh, and then finally, like, opens the curtains and everything. It's, uh, it, it's, it's a film that definitely de- deserves to be wider seen. But funnily enough, um, uh, of course, the song, Café de Flor, I think it's Flor. There's no accent on it. Okay, e, so fair enough. I'm going to go with Café de Flor. Um, you know, we hear, like, the kind of the 60s lounge version, and then we hear, like, a modern techno version. It's, like, clearly a melody that's, you know, had many lives. Um, there's also... Uh, a heavy use of uh, Pink Floyd. <laughs> yeah. He always signs off with uh, Dark Side of the Moon when he's doing his DJ sets. That's his kind of big signature. Uh, and I thought, first of all, I thought, oh, how'd they afford that? <laughs> how much of the budget went to just licensing <laughs> a couple of songs off uh, Dark Side of the Moon? But weirdly enough, I was in Montreal, uh, well, a week ago today, oddly enough. Actually, a week ago from this very moment that we're recording this on a Sunday morning. And uh, I was, we were on the, the patio of this Airbnb we were at, and somebody was blasting Dark Side of the Moon like a few, and I and just earlier in the day I've been thinking of, or earlier in the weekend I've been thinking about how much they love Pink Floyd in Quebec. Like it's, I mean, you know, they're obviously recognized as one of the giants of classic rock and so on, and you know, early prog and psychedelic and that kind of thing. But in Quebec, it's it's like almost like a religion. Like in fact, the idea for Pink Floyd the Wall came out of a concert uh, when they're on the Wish You Were Here tour at Olympic Stadium and a, a fan tried to climb on stage and Roger Waters either kicked him off stage or had him forcibly removed and he, he got the idea, you know, and he was like wishing he could just build a wall between himself and the audience and that's where the, and oh, that, that incident that. in Montreal is actually the the kernel for uh, what became the wall. Yeah, it came out of that. So, so but but obviously they love Pink Floyd. I mean, Prague in general is is more loved in, in Quebec than anywhere uh-huh. else, I think. Um, so it was interesting to see that and to have that, you know, a week later to have that kind of memory come back to me. Very good. Hearing somebody blasting uh, on, a, on a warm spring morning, blasting Dark Side of the Moon out of their window. Uh, and Sigurose also has a role in this, one of their songs. Yes. And well, it's, quite a, uh, well, if you look at the credits, I think there's four or five Sigurose yeah, songs. Yeah, and they're amazing too. I, yeah, I really, I really love... Uh, I love Cafe de Flore. It is really a wonderful film. It's really hypnotic. It's uh, it's gorgeous, philosophical. But uh, that uh, that its use of music, I think, has stayed with me in the years since I've seen it, and every time I've rewatched it. Uh, and uh, and you know, if you watch uh, Jean-Marc Vallée's career since then, I mean, if you watch Big Little Lies, see how music plays in that show. It's very key how much both uh, diegetic and non-diegetic it. Uh, it really, it really, it, it, it means something to the characters and it means something to us watching it. And I think that's true in all his work. He's, he's a super talented filmmaker out of, out of Quebec. And uh, yeah, I think people should definitely check out his, his work. And that wraps things up for this week. Don't forget to check out the Halifax Independent Filmmakers Festival starting June 6th here in Halifax. Uh, you can find the whole schedule and lots of trailers and lots of information about the films at 
H-I-F-F dot C-A. Certainly lots of things to see and recommend. Uh, the shorts programs, of course, will be full of surprises. Uh, the, the Danish film that Karsten mentioned, Team Hurricane, looks amazing. I watched the trailer for that about a bunch of young women at a summer camp and, and um, they're coming of age. It's kind of a documentary, but kind of a feature as well. Uh, and there's, there's lots more to check out uh, and examine in terms of documentaries, animation, and shorts. So, so definitely check that out. Uh, my name is Stephen Cook, and you can find me online on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. Uh, my name is Karsten Knox, and I am on Twitter as well by the name of my blog, Flaw in the Iris. Um, oh, and a quick shout out to Michael Melsky, filmmaker responsible for a Canadian film called uh, A Child Remains. Yes. Uh, he was the one who suggested we watch Murder by Decree, actually. Uh, and so a nod to him. Thanks. Thanks for that suggestion. You can also find us online at our Facebook page. We have a Patreon if you feel like supporting the show uh, with a little bit of financial recompense. And as always, we want to thank the folks here at CKDU 88.1 FM for the use of their studio and the folks at the Village Soundcast Network who put it all together for us. Thanks and see you next time. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Send feedback to Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 